Well, it's one of the charms of uh, the book of Revelation that on Father's Day I got to preach on the seven bowls of wrath. And on July 4th, I get to preach on the woman on the beast. So today, with Revelation chapter 17, we come to the beginning of the end of the book. The end is in sight from here on in. The end's been talked about from the beginning, but the end is in sight. The seven seals have been opened. Seven trumpets have been blown. Seven bowls have been poured out. And we mentioned this last week. In in the course of the book, John has introduced the main protagonists, the, the main enemies of the church, and he's introduced them in the following order. The dragon, the great dragon or the accuser or Satan. Satan means accuser. Then he introduced the beast and the false prophet. And finally he introduces this woman, Babylon, who we'll see a bit more of today. And what he's doing from here to the end of the book is he sort of zooms in, kind of blows the picture up, and and he's going to narrate their specific judgments in reverse order. Babylon will be judged first, then the beast and the false prophet, and then finally Satan is, is judged. And so today we begin with the introduction to the judgment of Babylon, and we'll look at the text under two headings, the prelude, and Babylon. They're there. There's an outline on the back inside page of your bulletin. So, first, there's a prelude. This is Revelation chapter 17, verse 1. Then one of the seven angels, who had the seven bowls, came and said to me. Now, right here, this is an important literary indicator. I mentioned this last week. One of the things about Revelation is the structure matters. The form matters. It's hard to get the content right if you don't get the form right. And so what John is doing here is he is expressly tying the bowl judgments, which we saw were the final expression of the judgment of God. We just finished those in chapter 16. He's tying those judgments to what we're about to look at here. That's why he says, one of the angels who had the seven bowls came to me and said this. And the angel says, come, I will show you the punishment or the judgment of the great prostitute. There's another literary indicator right here. We have a remarkable parallel to this language in chapter 21. There also, one of these same seven angels with these same seven bowls comes to John and says this, Come, I will show you. Here it's, come, I will show you the judgment of this woman. This metaphorical woman, Babylon. There it's, come, I will show you. Same angel, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. Now, why do I make a big deal out of this? What am I trying to say? Again, I'm trying to make this point that structure and form matters. He's tying the bowl judgments. He's saying these bowl judgments issue in, they result in two realities that are locked together. The judgment of the woman Babylon and the descent of the Holy Bride, the New Jerusalem, which happens in chapter 21. The whole book coheres this way. And John has all these linking devices to tell us Babylon must be destroyed for the bride to be revealed. Both realities are tied to the bowl judgments. That's what John has done already in this text. So there's this 
prostitute. In popular culture, it's, she's known as the whore of Babylon. She is great because she has great power and influence. And the angel tells John he's going to see her judgment. But he doesn't actually see her judgment until chapter 18. He's sort of getting there slowly. And this prostitute is said to be seated on many waters, which I hope many of us know what that means by now. Ancient Babylon, the actual kingdom, was said by Jeremiah to dwell on many waters. She sat there as a queen. She prided herself. But we don't have to guess here. Later in the chapter, we're going to actually be told that the waters on which the prostitute sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, and languages. Peoples, multitudes, nations, languages. And that she is seated on them implies her dominion over them. This woman has a kind of dominion over the nations. And especially, we'll see, she has an authority over the kings of the earth. So John still hasn't told us exactly who she is. He's unraveling this layer by layer. And in verse 2, we begin to see the basis why this harlot is judged. She is the one with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality or adulteries. So the kings of the earth, in the immediate context, remember, Revelation is a book written to seven actual churches with actual geographies and addresses in Asia Minor in the first century. That's often forgotten when we get to the back end of the book. And the kings of the earth in this context would be primarily the client kings of the Roman Empire. So what John is saying, he's making a political statement. See, this is a 4th of July sermon. He's he's making a political statement. He's saying that the client kings, the local regional political authorities, have fornicated with this harlot. These are local sycophants, quislings, panderers. No big um, regime, no total regime, can exist without all of these local authorities pandering to it. Fornicating with it. This is standard prophetic language, meaning spiritual infidelity and idolatry. You see it throughout the prophets. In Ezekiel chapter 16, Israel herself is graphically depicted as a whore which has fornicated with the nations. So, we've indicated already in the the series, but let us remind ourselves here, Babylon is, first and foremost, the city of Rome. We know this for a lot of reasons. Her worldwide dominion over the peoples and all the kings of the earth. The fact that we're later told that that she sits on seven hills. Rome was famously known as the city of seven hills. You can find this in Virgil. You can find this in all the ancient writers. So they make the identification of Babylon with Rome, the city on seven hills, virtually certain. So, it's important to get the, uh, the characters right. So let me anticipate what's to come just a little bit. Babylon is the empire manifested in the harlot city of Rome, the capital. And I'll clarify this a bit later. 
So verse 2 continues and says, With the wine of her adulteries, the inhabitants or the dwellers on the earth have become intoxicated. So she has a kind of universal reach in her seduction. Sort of like some global cities today do. Not only do the kings of the earth drink her wine, but all the peoples of the earth are involved with her. And in John's vision, what Babylon has on offer blinds, it numbs, it intoxicates the nations. They gladly drink. They offer no protest because the benefits they're going to receive or that they are receiving from her services. She holds a cup out to them and gives them to drink. She provides an anti-Eucharist. She provides a contrasting cup to that cup for the nations to drink from. So, I want to assert again that this, this spiritual fornicating by the nations with Rome is to be conceived of, thought of, at least in part, in economic terms. Right, we saw this all the way back in the beginning of the book, where the, where the trade guilds, the local trade guilds exerted pressure on the churches toward idolatry. And that was already wreaking economic havoc among Christians. That's, this was the significance of the mark of the beast. It was an economic mark, you'll recall. Without it, you can't buy or sell. So Babylon then provides economic prosperity. She provides security. She provides cultural delights. But she does it in exchange for loyalty to the regime. This is the bread and circuses part of the Roman Empire. And so you have a total state, which is always a central planning state. It always wants to control, especially the economy. And it coerces loyalty for small little incremental bits of idolatry. And the kings of the earth, they're fine with this. Give me the cup, they say. I'll drink. And the benefits that Rome provides, sitting on the beast, to the client kings, blind men, to the coming judgment on the regime. Nobody at the time John writes, John's writing depending on, he's writing in the first century. Even in the most critical of scholarship, John could be writing in the early second century. Nobody at the time John writes thinks the Roman regime is in any trouble. John is predicting its collapse, which doesn't happen until the 4th century. So that's the prelude. The second point is Babylon herself. And so here, hopefully we can clarify some things. In verse 3, the same angel carries John away in the spirit. This happens again in chapter 21 when John is given the revelation of the bride. The bride is the anti-Babylon. Destruction of Babylon is the corollary to the coming of the bride. And so I want to make another important point here. To the first readers of this book, the beast is the Roman Empire. But the beast can have subsequent manifestations in history. Right? The beast is sort of the Roman Empire, but also a kind of generic figure for John here. And so it is with Babylon. Babylon can reappear. 
First and foremost, she's the ancient city of Rome. There's no doubt about that. But there are new Babylons, new manifestations of Babylon in various guises until the end. So anyway, John is carried in the spirit into a wilderness or a desert. The wilderness metaphor here is important. As we saw back in chapter 12 of this book, after Christ's triumph, he ascends to heaven, throws down the accuser or the dragon, which chases the church into the wilderness. The wilderness is the place that the woman is chased into after the ascension. And it's a place of danger. Think of the wilderness. It's a place of danger. For John, it's also a place of provision and protection for the church. But there's another echo John's drawing on here. In in Scripture, the wilderness is a place men go to fast and pray and wrestle, as Jesus did, with principalities and powers. It's... It's this vantage point being in the wilderness which allows John to see beneath the veneer of the prostitute. Right? He's going to be able to see her inner hideous ugliness. Even though she's arrayed in a kind of glory. It's an important lesson, right? Silence is therapeutic for us. And we need it. We need prayer and detachment. We need to carve our own wildernesses out if we're going to see things right. Remember, John sees this whole vision from a rocky Roman prison isle in the Aegean Sea. A prison colony named Patmos. This is, at its best, what the monastic tradition in the church has been trying to protect. You need the desert to see things right. It's in the desert that the demonic character of the whore of Babylon is revealed. And so what John sees in verse 3 is a woman, same woman as the great prostitute in verse 1, and notice now the woman is sitting on a scarlet beast. By the way, this is just one of many, many reasons you cannot take this language strictly literally. The woman's sitting on many waters, and then two verses later she's sitting on a scarlet beast, The woman's sitting on many waters, but John can only see her if he's in the wilderness. John has, as we said last week, a sort of um, symbolic geography. And so anyway, he sees the woman sitting on a scarlet beast. And the beast, full of blasphemous names, has seven heads and ten horns. This is the same beast we saw in chapter 13. First and foremost, the beast is the empire, the Roman Empire. Scarlet beast because the beast is soon to be drunk on the blood of the saints. That's why the beast is red. So, Babylon now is seated on the beast. This speaks of her resting on and her, her alliance with the state. And so, I want to put some things together now. This is the first time in the series on Revelation I've done this. So if you're lost and you pay attention for the next 60 seconds, you can, you can be found again. So I want to put some things together this way for the first time. Because this is what John is doing, and it's, it's very powerful. The beast as the Roman Empire represents the coercive 
military power and violence of the state. Babylon, the city of Rome, sits on top of the Roman state and it represents the empire in its economic and cultural seduction. Sort of two ways of viewing the empire. Think of it this way. The empire can be viewed militarily or it can be viewed culturally. If you view it militarily, in in, in the lens of power, John calls it a beast. If you view it culturally, in terms of cultural seduction, John calls it a whore. And he says this horse sits on top of this beast. And so he is saying this to his first century Christian readers about the Roman situation they're in. That there's a kind of insidious alliance, a kind of conspiracy between the coercive political and military power on the one hand and Rome's far-flung economic and cultural power on the other. And here the book becomes relevant. In new ways. It's essentially the toxic combination of power and luxury. Politics and culture. Military displays of prowess and cultural holidays. You know, like air shows on the 4th of July. Power, military power, cultural seduction. The economy, the, uh, the, 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 pr- the pleasure or the seductive side of the culture, and the total state are seated together, and John sees them as one beast whore-like entity. And the kings of the earth like to fornicate with it, with the whole conglomerate structure. And they're implicated in it, as are, as are all the citizens of the empire by the very structure of their economic and political and cultural lives. This is ancient totalitarianism, and it sweeps everybody up in its wake. So you have a scenario here where there are no meaningful ways to stop this power from crushing out individuals. There are no mediating institutions, not the family, not the church, not local or regional economies, certainly not local or regional political authorities. They're fornicating with the beast. You think the governor of the state of whatever state we're in is going to protect you against bestial powers? Should we have a totalitarian? No, the governor of the state, the governors of the states will fornicate with the beast. Everything local or regional has now become in John's vision an arm of and subject to this total coercive beast and the seductive harlot. This is what's toxic, not just state power, not just cultural pervasiveness. It's the combination of the two together. And so in the end, the naked individual alone has to conform to the dictates of the beast and the whore which sits on the beast or be killed. That's what John is telling the church. It's a prescription for tyranny and ultimately bloodshed. Essentially, he's saying to the Christians in Asia Minor in in 95 AD, you will soon be in a situation like the church was in in Eastern Europe after World War II. So, the description of the woman now continues in verse 4. And hopefully with that combination, 
Maybe some things are clearer. So it's not surprising the woman is arrayed and dressed in purple and scarlet. She has sumptuous colors of royalty and wealth. Her garments are to be contrasted to the pure white linen of the saints. She's adorned, John says, with gold and jewels and pearls. It's uh, very similar, some of this adornment, to what, what Israel's high priest wore. And I think the point is that Babylon is a false religious system. Right? The total state is always a rival religion. Right? When, when, when the civilization rejects God, it's not like nothing fills the vacuum. Generally, what fills it is the total state. She's got all these precious stones on, and those should remind us of the New Jerusalem, the bride, which is also adorned in precious stones. Because she's a false bride. Babylon represents a rival religion, a false bride, she holds out an alternative cup to that cup. She doesn't drink the blood of Christ, she's drunk on the blood of Christ, smarters. So, this is where thinking about the church helps us. The New Testament tells us that the church is a holy nation. She's a holy nation which gathers all nations into herself. She's a holy nation, which is also an international nation or a civilization. This is why you should be wary both of nationalism and a naive internationalism. Because you're part of a church which is a nation composed of all nations. So, the state then, here as false bride, is arrayed in all this glittering pageantry. And she holds in her hand, the text says, a golden cup. Again, this is the cup of her economic and cultural seduction. It's a false Eucharist. And so, John is unmasking Rome's idolatry here as disgusting. Now, you have to understand, the the people in the prison cells next to John on Patmos, when he is saying this in 95 AD, or even in 70 AD, if he wrote the book earlier, they would think he's stark raving mad. I mean, the Roman state has given us the great Pax Romana. The Roman state has given us peace. The Roman state has given us prosperity. At this point, the Roman state is not killing Christians. But John says, be careful. Be careful what you do with that cup. It's interesting that John realizes that there's an outward glory here. There's a kind of intoxicating vision. It would be wrong to assume that when cultures get this kind of power, economically, culturally, and militarily, that people are not impressed. Right? People are very, very impressed. They do religious things. Right? They stare up in, they stare up in the sky at military planes for hours and drool. So the real world prosperity and the pleasure that the total state can bring seduce. Power and luxury is very hard to resist. 
And so in verse 5, we're told that on her forehead, in contrast to the seal, which is on the saints, she's got a mark on her forehead. She wants her followers marked with her mark. But you're marked with the mark of baptism. So she's an alternative religion. She's an alternative bride. She has an alternative Eucharist. And she has an alternative baptism, an alternative mark. And hers says, Babylon, the great, a name of mystery. This is meant ironically. She's, not, she's only great in her own eyes. In fact, John is borrowing here from the book of Daniel where Nebuchadnezzar, the actual monarch of the actual Babylonian empire from the 6th century B.C., talk, parades around his palace and talks about how great he is on the very night his kingdom is going to be fallen. And so John calls her Babylon the great, the mother of prostitutes. Here he means something like this. Rome, the great mother prostitute, spawns an array of other prostitute cities throughout the empire. Again, local underlings. Every city wants to be New York City or Paris. In this case, every city wants to imitate Rome. She begets other prostitutes. Cultural corruption metastasizes, as it would, in fact, do as the Roman Empire unwound. Again, she stands in contrast to the church. The church is depicted in the book of Revelation as the woman who is our mother and has holy offspring. So John's painting a stark, contrasting vision. Finally, verse 6, the woman who made the nations drunk with the wine of her idolatry, is herself drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs, the witnesses of Jesus. This is John's punchline. He sees the Roman state, which his neighbors certainly think is benign and even beneficial at this point. He sees her as having principles at work in her that will eventually lead, as it did historically, to the slaughter of Christians throughout the empire. So in this context, the witnesses, witness is a legal term. You are a witness. You have a legal function in the earth. You offer testimony before the heavenly court and judge of Jesus. These are the only dissenters. And such people, if they can't be seduced and coerced, must be killed. The, the, the cultural ideas, the economic ideas of the total state are ideas that are so good, they have to be coercively enforced. And so again, the fact that this leads to the blood of the martyrs shows you that John sees an alliance of Babylon, the empire's economic and cultural seduction, and the beast, the empire's coercive military power. The owners of the mall are not going to kill you. But when every cultural power can, is aligned in a civilization with the, 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 the military state, then dissenters start getting killed. So, this golden cup that she held out, It's both the cup of her abominations, John says, meaning her seduction, her wealth, and it's a cup full of the blood 
of Jesus' martyrs and saints. It's a mockery of that cup. And all that John has seen thus far is a kind of bloodthirsty magnificence. That's how you might describe this passage. He's seen her successful collusion with the beast. He's astonished, the the text says at the end of uh, verse 6. He's perplexed. And he he marvels greatly. He doesn't know what to make of the the vision he's seen. And next week, Lord willing, we'll see this. The angel deals with John's perplexity. You may be perplexed. You're in good company. John is perplexed. So let me just say a a word or two about applying this. Um, I've probably already said a few words about it, but I'll say a a few more things. Um, When we think of a text like this, in our own context... The first thing I want to say to you is this. We need to be careful. We need to be careful and we need to be willing to do the hard work of contemporary application. There really are no simple lines directly from this text to our situation. I'm not going to call you an idolater if you go to the air show this afternoon. I am saying, though, that you should think you should think critically and in a Christian fashion about displays of military power that are joined to national cultural holidays. That should be something you do some thinking about. Right? I like football. But military flyovers at football games give me a little bit of pause. And it's not because I don't like the United States military. I'm not saying I have all the answers. I'm saying this is what John is equipping you to do. He's trying to say you should think. Remember we said this all the way back in the beginning. The book of Revelation is a political resistance tract. That's what it is. It's resistance from beginning to end. It's an equipment to you to think through these things. And so what I would say is any critique here that leaves us, me, you, or our political opinions, or our nation and its political and economic order intact, is likely to be self-serving. Our Babylon has a way of promulgating its own immorality and spreading its culture, not only around here, but around the world. So... We have to be able to take the things that we love the most and that we assume are harmless and ask some hard questions about it. At the very least, at the very least, that's what a text like this causes us to do. We have a softer, kinder version of a kind of total and political economic order. We're often infatuated and seduced by our own prosperity without seeing its alliance with its sitting on the beast a powerful, the world's most powerful military state. So let me risk, and this is a risk, I want to give a starting point for some contemporary reflection. I'm going to go just a little bit further than I've gone here. And this is only a starting point. You might disagree, but this is, I think, what a text like this should do to us. This is what I think about when I read this text. In our situation, the left is good at critiquing corporations, for example. But very often poor at seeing the underlying statism they exploit and that they benefit from. 
by means of, say, well-paid lobbyists and special favors. So we have this brothel-like revolving door between the government on the one hand, especially the Fed, and the Treasury Department, and, say, Goldman Sachs on the other. But the vilification is always aimed at the banks. It's rarely aimed at the government beast that the banks ride on. But John is saying, even in the first century, you have to be aware of the, of the toxic combination of the militarized state and the economic and cultural power which rides on the militarized state. The right is often good at critiquing the dangers of an intrusive total state, but often blind to corporate exploitation of the system and the consumerism and the wealth and the luxury it, it, it It creates. If you stick around here, if you don't leave after this sermon, if you come back, in chapter 18, John is going to list the commodities that Rome has. And he is going to indict the city for the corruption that has produced its wealth. So, and the right is almost always a fawning cheerleader for the wars of the total state. And I offer this simply as a place to start the discussion. It's that type of thinking that a text like this should should get modern Christians to to do. One thing seems certain to me, and that's that some kind of an alliance between some kind of modern Babylon and some kind of modern beast, some kind of alliance between economic control and, and, and coercive state power is now the status quo in all Western democracies. At the very least, you should notice that. That doesn't mean it's going to lead to the same place it it led Rome. I'm not saying that. I am not trying to be an alarmist. I am not an alarmist. Anyone who knows me knows that. I am not an alarmist. I may be a very grim pessimist, (laughs) but I am not an alarmist. It just means the situation we're in is volatile. It's combustible. And part of the danger is because that situation provides enormous benefits to us. So what's required from the church is what John has said throughout the book. Patience. Wisdom. Endurance. The word endurance, when John says this this is a call for the endurance of the saints, essentially means resistance. And much more careful political analysis than we're used to rendering. Now this is, of course, I want to be clear here too, this is not everyone's calling. There's a division of labor in the church, but people do need to do political analysis in the church. And it can't be done in sound bites. So, we are neither fundamentalists who think everything is bad... Nor are we just naive, happy Americans who don't see any antithesis between the kingdom of God and our situation. We serve another king, another lord, we're part of another nation. Christ has created a new culture, a new, a new order in the church, and that relativizes. That doesn't mean we can't enjoy the goods of our nation and our, our, our liberties. Of course we do. I love the Constitution. I do. We enjoy the goods. 
but they're penultimate goods, and sometimes they're combined in a way which is toxic. And so this book, especially this chapter, and especially the next chapter, are critical to the church's prophetic witness. They're critical to her economic and political reflection. And so we pray for God to give us light and wisdom, for fortitude, that we drink that cup and not be seduced by the power and glory of Babylon's cup. Amen.